Well, good day, and welcome back to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. This week, we are down at Avoca Ag. I'm sitting face to face with Tim Jarvis. We own the lands of the Kulana people, and I am super interested to share this chat with you. We headed down to Evoke. We did a bit of a round-the-grounds chat with a few different people, got the latest on what was happening, but Tim was one of the keynote speakers in the afternoon. He is a dude, and I think I've been fortunate to chat to Ned Brockman and Trent Thorne, and Tim Jarvis is another person who really fascinatingly uses adventure as a way to get his foot in the door to talk about environmental issues with people and businesses. And at Evoke, he spoke about his Shackleton experience, which was just fascinating. And he goes into it in a little bit of detail here. But I think more so what I loved about this chat was kind of the mindset of how he takes on big obstacles, but uses, I guess, these analogies and his experiences to get really important messages across to people that maybe otherwise they wouldn't be super receptive to. So if you want to check out more about Tim, head to timjarvis.org or just jump on our website. We've got a little bit of a blurb about him. Fascinating chat. Let's get into it. Tim, we're here at Avocag. We're towards the end of day two. You spoke yesterday and gave an incredible keynote in what was using adventure, I guess, as an education tool to talk about environmentalism and I guess your passions. But for our listeners who have probably never heard of Tim Jarvis before, how would you introduce yourself, Tim? Well, it depends who you ask, but I, I suppose environmental scientist and adventurer is what I've been called. I have a background in soil science, but I've also had a parallel life climbing mountains and crossing polar ice caps, uh, which gives you the opportunity to really talk to themes about climate change and humanity's footprint, because I go to some of the remotest places and then my environmental science background allows me to sort of talk, hopefully in an informed way, about what we can do about those sorts of issues. This background and adventure, where did it start for you? Oh, it's an interesting question. Where did it start? I mean, I think I've always been an inquisitive kid. I grew up in Malaysia as a small kid. I'm in my 50s now. There was obviously no internet and nothing on TV. And my parents would say, get out and explore. And I did. And it made me more resourceful as a child. And I had a lot of formative sort of life experiences in nature as a kid. And that led, I guess, to more adventure and a kind of environmentalism at quite a young age. And now I find that the adventure has got to a pretty, you know, extreme level, but the platform it provides you can allow you to then talk to environmental themes, to audiences who may not want to listen to environmentalism. They might want to listen to adventure and leadership based. What is your earliest memory around one of these adventures and maybe a pivotal moment of how that made you feel? Oh, I remember I used to go to a, an adventure camp in Malaysia as a small kid. I was by this stage living in Singapore. My father was working there and I was at a school that really encouraged this kind of stuff. We had a Duke of Edinburgh kind of outdoor scheme going and we used to go to this jungle camp once a year. And I remember going there as a 12-year-old and we all got lost, me and a group got lost. But I had a compass because I used to carry one around with me and I managed to navigate us back to camp, albeit many hours later in the dark where everybody was looking for us, wondering where we were. But I remember at 12 thinking, you know, maybe I picked up a few skills here and it made me realize that if you sort of fall back on some of these principles and have the confidence to do it, you can achieve great things. So it was a real moment for me, actually, as a 12-year-old. And from that moment, was it obvious that like an environmental science kind of pathway would eventuate or was it a really conscious decision? No, it wasn't really that obvious because, I mean, really, I'm in my 50s now. There wasn't really an environmental science field when I um, emerged. I went to uni in the UK, did geography. That was sort of the nearest thing I could find to 
what would ultimately become environmental science, but there wasn't really a subject to study in that at that, that stage. I emerged that in fact, I got a job in sales and marketing. I couldn't actually find an environmental job because they didn't really exist. And then I did that for a number of years and then went, found myself a master's degree, which really did focus more on that. But even then it was sort of soil science and natural resource management. It wasn't actually environmentalism. And those sorts of degree subjects now and TAFE courses for people are now very commonplace, but back then they just weren't there. But I, yeah, to answer your question, I always had a kind of feeling that I would end up in that sort of space. And so 30 years for you in this professional space, like it, in the scheme of things, it's a really short amount of time. And, and sitting here at Evoke, I can't help but feel some of the conversations feel like there's this real sense of urgency, nearly verging on panic around some of the, especially around the decarbonisation. Do you agree with that? And maybe what's changed over that 30-year period? You know, it's very interesting you should say that. I, I, like I've been delivering talks based on polar expeditions, talking about leadership and also talking about climate change, because most people regard melting ice caps as a very good way of sort of showing climate change for about 20 years. And I've noticed the dialogue go from denial about the existence of climate change as an issue to denial about the fact that humanity is kind of responsible for a lot of the changes we're seeing to suddenly the switch having gone on and people going into a state of despondency about the scale of the challenge we now face. So they've gone from not believing to suddenly believing and now suddenly going, wow, we've only got, in the case of Australia, we've only got seven years till our interim 43% reduction in carbon emissions has to happen. And agriculture, of course, has a huge role to play in that and is probably not very well prepared. There are some shining lights, don't get me wrong, but there's still a huge amount of work to do. So yeah, I'm seeing a certain amount of control panic. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think it was Sam Elson chatting on the farm to arm the fashion panel. And he said there's seven summers left. So in ag terms, that's seven harvests. It's not a whole lot of time, especially when you think we've had a couple of really good seasons. So we're actually coming into probably what will be a cycle of more challenging times periodically. I can't help but feel like there over the next couple of years, that there's going to be a huge need for some really strong leadership in this space. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think good leadership is really about getting a group of people with disparate interests, backgrounds, strengths, weaknesses, all to pull as one in pursuit of a common goal. Really, that's what leadership is. And we really will need that good leadership moving forward because I think in most industries, in fact, you know, globally as a, as a phenomenon, there are two things we're dealing with in the context of climate change. One is how do we stop making the problem worse? And that's all about uh, mitigation. So in other words, trying to find, you know, renewable energy to replace fossil fuels and that kind of thing with transport and with packaging and with energy production. And the elephant in the room, which is how do we draw down all the excess stuff that's been put up in the atmosphere as a result of the last 200 years of human activity? That's the far bigger one. In the context of agriculture, we've got you know, 115 million tonnes of CO2 emissions from this sector, give or take, at the moment, which is about 15 to 20% of Australia's total. And if we're going to pull our weight, I guess, like all other industries, we need to reduce that 115 million down to somewhere around the 50 million tonnes emissions mark by 2030, if we're going to be doing our bit. But the bigger picture is how does agriculture go to become climate positive by sequestering not only its own footprint of CO2, but also doing some heavy lifting for other industry sectors like aviation or manufacturing, who maybe can't make the changes themselves to process. And so 
are going to need to rely on us to actually draw down some of that excess stuff. And that's the more exciting space with things like biochar and soil carbon and, and the role of habitat reintroduction and regenerative farming to, to help achieve that. So yeah, look, it's, it's a challenge, but it is an area full of just huge opportunity. Yeah. And I think for me, it's interesting. And say in, in the tech space as well, you can come at it from a pessimistic angle, which maybe is also the realist a little bit in it going, ah, you know, there's a lot of blue sky thinking in this space, but also too, it's really going to be hope and optimism, which is going to get people on board to make change. It's look, it's anyone who's read Henry V or seen that, you know, the Shakespearean Henry V, you know, it's the palms up against an overwhelming force of French as it was in a battle back in the 1300s. And he said, look, the bad news is they massively overwhelm us in terms of numbers. The good news is if we win this thing, there aren't many of us we've got to share the glory between. And we've got to try and frame this as a positive thing. I'm not saying there's a perfect metaphor, but look, we are in a, a period of very exciting opportunity. Australia has, according to ETH in Zurich, the leading university in this carbon space, carbon and natural resource management space, we, ha we are number five in the world with the amount of spare ground without giving over wheat or sugarcane to put in habitat, natural habitat that helps support nature and sequester CO2. 58 million hectares, by the way, was the figure that ETH are throwing around. And then we've got all the land that we do currently have under agriculture with the opportunity to do things better, locking up more in soil organic matter, which in turn helps that land retain more moisture. I mean, 1% of organic matter in soil retains almost 180,000 litres of additional water per hectare in soil. And these are scientifically calculated figures, peer-reviewed science, not hearsay. So you can start to see that there are real co-benefits for farmers to do things differently, both in terms of carbon and water use all over the place in this space. It's a very exciting time to be involved in agriculture, I think. There's a question I want to ask you around that in terms of the word environmentalist and in agriculture circles, people can go, well, but what's the role? What's the complementary role of environmentalism and agriculture and how do they fit together? Well, that's a big question. I mean, uh, you know, first of all, I'd say, look, I'm very happy not to call myself an environmentalist because I think you're right. It does tend to sometimes throw up barriers in people's minds. They think if, you know, for a start, it's going to be a cost, it's going to be anti-competitive, it's going to be anti-me if I'm a fisher or a beef farmer. I'm very happy not to be an environmentalist. I'm just a sort of pragmatist who wants to work with people to get co-benefits for both people and their businesses, but also the longevity of this planet and future generations. You know, it's all about trying to make everything work as best we possibly can. Look, the UN said that we get 44 trillion US dollars worth of stuff from nature each year for nothing. That's half of global GDP. That's the, producing the air we breathe through trees and plants filtering the water we drink, uh, producing the soil we grow our crops in, providing us with pharmaceutical wealth, the insects that pollinate many of our plants and crops. I mean, we get a tremendous amount from nature. So for a start, we have to very evidently protect that or we really don't have farming going forward, uh, nor do we have civilization going forward. In terms of benefits for farmers of things like thinking differently, the amount of resources that get spent on herbicides, pesticides, fertilizers, irrigation, much of that can be mitigated by having a higher level of organic content in soil. The number I mentioned before of 180,000 litres of additional water retention in a hectare of soil based on having 1% of organic matter, which in turn is all about changing the way you uh, arably crop land, for example, 
These are real figures. That suppressed dust. If you're a pastoralist, dust suppression is a good thing for the quality of fiber on, on a sheep's back, all the way through to survival rates of lambs the amount you need to irrigate through trees and windbreaks, slowing down the speed at which wind crosses your paddocks. I mean, there are so many co-benefits associated with doing the right thing by the environment for a farming operation in terms of dollars and cents that it makes sense to try and achieve both. And I'm very happy if we don't call that environmentalism. We just call it good farming practice. Yeah, and I think that's probably where there are so many people in, in the ag sector who have been doing the right thing, fencing off creeks, planting trees, et cetera. And it has just been about, I guess, building that ecosystem on their farm. And it just happens to be that maybe that word is. <laughs> That's right. You know, I, like I say, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of good people in this space doing a lot of good things and they've never called themselves an environmentalist. They're just stewards of the land who care. They want to pass it on to their sons and daughters or keep farming for as long as they can or you know, really believe in what they do. And I'm not making any judgment because there are a lot of good people doing that. And frankly, if people never call me an environmentalist, they just call me someone who's a solutions focused person who wants to get involved. That's fine by me. And that's really what a lot of people in farming are. Sounds like a pretty good title. <laughs> Problem solvers. Yeah. I want to take a slight left turn and go down the pathway of your adventure. And you spoke about it here, that the big adventure, obviously retracing Shackleton's steps. Where did you dream that up? And how did it kind of come to fruition? Well, look, Shackleton is one of those heroic explorers from the heroic era 100 years ago. He's a contemporary of Mawson's, Douglas Mawson. And I suppose his expedition to save himself after the loss of his ship endurance is just such a famous story that for someone who'd done a lot of adventuring myself, it had always been the big one. And I happened to walk to the South Pole back in 1999 and I got invited to an exhibition and a conference to sort of celebrate people who'd achieved things in the polar regions. And I was looking at a display cabinet of some items from the heroic era and a voice piped up next to me. And it was a woman who I later discovered to be Ernest Shackleton's granddaughter. And she said, congratulations on what you achieved. You know, what do you think of some of these artifacts that it turned out were her grandfather's? And so we struck up a friendship, you know, 15 years later, with her having asked me to do it, I find myself having assembled the team to retrace Shackleton's journey. So I guess, look, it was always the big one, but I had the confidence to take it on because I felt that I had her say so to do it. It was a great honor. And I knew there were a lot of eyes on us doing this thing, but I was fascinated to see if we could really step up and in any way emulate what he'd managed to achieve all those years ago. You know, it was a big, they're big shoes to fill. And you shared some photos of the boat yesterday, but so people can kind of picture it. What was genuinely at stake? What were the safety nets and what was involved in the preparation in the lead up to this expedition? So look, the journey we did was to retrace what he did. And what he did was when the ship went down, he and his 27 men paddled three little, essentially surf boats. In fact, surf boats are modeled on the old ship to shore Royal Navy rowboats. And that's exactly what these were. They paddled to an island. There he left 22 of the 27 men. And then he and the five strongest got in the most seaworthy of those three and took it across the Southern Ocean from the Antarctic to a sub-Antarctic island called South Georgia, 1500 k's away. He did it wearing, you know, cotton smocks, woolens and leather boots with no rewriting technology, with a ton of rocks in the bottom of the boat, stop it tipping over in, in rough sea, no keel, very unstable, very cold, very wet, very precarious. And we essentially did the same thing other than the fact that people knew where we were. We had a little beacon on our boat that told other shipping where we were essentially to stop us getting run over by other ships. 
It didn't give us any navigational benefit. We used uh, Sexton and Compass and Sun Sights and things like that. And there was a boat in the Southern Ocean that kind of, I suppose, notionally was our rescue. But, you know, if they're 150 nautical miles away and you go overboard in a storm in the dark, they may as well be in a different ocean. So look, the risks were absolutely real. They had to be or it wouldn't have been doing what he did. How do you go talking your family into allowing you to do an adventure like this? Like it without pointing at a selfish thing in one sense of what's at stake? Yeah, it is. I mean, look, I I think to an extent, I think kind of self-delusion is a very useful attribute in exploration, probably in farming too, where, you know, you don't want to think about the enormity of the challenge ahead of you. You just break it down into small things you've got to get done, sow a crop, get rid of weeds, plow this, do that, you know. If you think about all the summers ahead of you and all the work you have to do to keep that operation going, it might seem overwhelming. The key thing is don't look up. And so it is with expeditions. You just kind of break it down into small pieces and work to those. And the people around you probably don't know all that's involved. And to an extent, you kind of delude yourself about the likelihood of death and everything just gets talked down such that my wife always intends me to see me again, whether she likes it or not, coming back from an expedition. You know, I guess you both live in this kind of slightly deluded state of thinking it's all okay, but maybe it's not. But I do. Look, in seriousness, I use the trips to speak to, I do speak to a lot of kids, a lot of corporates about sustainability, and I don't think I'd have that platform if I didn't do the trips. One question I'm really wondering about, when it comes to putting it out into the world that this is the trip you're going to do or the next adventure, what role does that have to play in being a motivating factor for you? And and I guess, how do you balance, obviously, the need for internal and self-confidence in the task at hand is really important. But how do you balance that with humility? Oh, these are very good questions. Look, I think, you know, this is the difference between sports psychology and expedition psychology. Sports psychology, you're up against human opposition. And a lot of sports psychologists will tell you, first of all, first and foremost, you've got to focus on what your game plan is and just focus on your game plan. But part of that inevitably leads to you thinking about what you're, what's in your opposition's head and things like that. And so it's human versus human in that psychological game with nature it doesn't matter whether you're a nice guy a parent are doing something for charitable intent if you're good enough to get up a mountain because you've done the planning and the homework and you're lucky you'll succeed and if not no hard feelings but you just you won't prevail sometimes that can be very serious sometimes you just don't achieve the summit and so look it keeps you humble and i think humility is very important in going into the next thing you never take your CV of previous things too seriously because no one else is going to take it seriously. Nature doesn't have a view on it. You go there and if you're good enough, you might be successful. If not, you won't. And I sort of carry that into everything I do in life. I think you have a confidence in what you've done before, but you never, you know, never overstate it. Take what you do seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously is a good sort of adage. No, I like that. And I think when it comes to a business context, how are you translating that is your work in translating to being high performing teams and how you build those cultures is it about is it the priority of actually well the adventure serves as the opportunity for you to get in front of people and talk about these uncharted parts of the world i think that's a very good question i think the look i think the subject matter of doing stuff in the polar regions is useful to immediately frame things in an environmental way because most people regard melting ice as kind of a a climate change related phenomenon so that immediately you've got that kind of backdrop to the whole narrative is kind of climate related so there's that in the first instance getting your foot in the door with people using the adventure leadership teamwork problem solving adaptive management kind of stuff again expeditions are such a deep rich vein of material that 
that it automatically kind of gets you an audience because it's kind of interesting. But you do then have an opportunity to really draw the real parallels that exist in that space back to the corporate world, back to some of the physical challenges that we're facing, because the skills are really, really the same. I mean, I know on the surface of it, they may not appear to be, but they really are. I mean, breaking the total challenge down into manageable pieces, adapting on the run, remembering that what you're trying to achieve remains fixed, how you get there needs to change. Understanding that to get a group of people pulling together as one, you really need to message in the right way to get that person to be on board with what you're doing. And I mean, that's as relevant for climate change or sustainable agriculture as it is with getting a team of people to climb a mountain. So look, I think it gets your foot in the door. The backdrop of polar stuff is very evidently kind of environmental, but I think the parallels are so real that it allows people to hear your story, but actually in their own mind, join the dots and apply it to their circumstances. And I think that's the power of stories, isn't it? It's the power of stories. And it allows you to have a kind of proxy conversation about problems you might be facing with your business or your organization and do it in a less threatening way because you're using my subject matter to have that conversation. When it comes to these big problems, I've heard people talk about the change in terms of an I, we, and us. So when it comes to climate change, the threat, I guess, is existential of what it could mean for humanity. That's the us problem. When it comes to what it means, say, as an ag sector, where we are quite diverse and in our own pockets as well. So we do have those challenges of how we actually bring together people from very different backgrounds, geographies, et cetera. When it comes to the individual as well, there's little actions that every single one of us can take. Big question, I don't even know if there's an answer. Where do you start and how do you bring these to the table for individuals, businesses, communities, industries, and then I guess the broader society? Well, it's a big question. I mean, I think, I think, yes, look, you can use the skills that I mentioned, things like understanding to get a group of people pulling together. You need to message differently depending on who's, who it is that you're talking to. Speak the client's language, really, to get them to want to be on board for what, what you're doing. Yes, you break the enormity down. Yes, you change on the run in the knowledge that, you know, you've got to keep adapting to, to, to circumstances to still keep the whole thing moving forward. But I think the big picture with expeditions is that they're big complex, multi-dimensional, multi-year kind of endeavors if they're really big. And I always start from the end point I'm seeking to reach and work back from that and put in place all the things I think I need to have in place to enable me to achieve, have a good chance of achieving that thing. Money, people, resources, know-how. You don't just start climbing or start walking across Antarctica uh, or getting in a boat and trying Shackleton's journey, just casting off and hoping for the best. You've really worked back from that end point with all the things you think you need to have in place to achieve it. And I think that's what we really ultimately need to be doing in agriculture more broadly, or as an individual thinking, how do I play my part in getting to that end point? So in the agricultural context, we know we have to feed 9.7 billion people by century's end. We know we need 70% more calories to be produced to do that equitably, globally. We know that Roughly 30% of land needs to be returned to nature at some level, whether it's the fringes of a farm or a farm operating more regeneratively or pockets of land that we need to reestablish as nature for all of the benefits it can bring farming and, of course, us and the planet. So we know some of these numbers. We know what Australia's commitment looks like in terms of carbon. By 2030, it's got to be a 43% reduction on 2005. We know for agriculture that means roughly 50 million tons. We have a kind of carbon account. Where are we going to find that 50 million? So as an industry sector, we have to say, 
How are we going to go about doing that? If that's our budget, like a financial budget, where are we going to find the cost savings? Where are we going to find the carbon cost savings? And an individual, another key learning I've learned from expeditions is you control what you can. You make your contribution. You don't get overwhelmed by the enormity of the overall task. Sailing Shackleton's boat, you don't think about South Georgia, really. You think about the next one-hour shift where you're in charge of the helm of the boat. Get through that, hand on to the next guy, and you keep doing that. You do it a few hundred times, and you might get there. Don't look up too often, except to see whether you feel you're still on track periodically, and then back down into the detail again so you don't get overwhelmed with the overall challenge. And I think an individual can see how they can make their contribution to the 50 million based on maybe the size of their industry sector and how big their farm is in the context of that particular sector. That's one way of doing it. Or you can just say, look, I'm going to make you know, savings the equivalent of what I know the industry has to make over time to reach a 2030 target. However you choose to do it, however it works for you to keep you motivated and keep you going. But it's all about not becoming overwhelmed with the overall scale of the problem, I think. Yeah. Incremental change. Well put. That's why you're in this space, because you can, you're you succinct. I took three minutes to say what you just said in two words. Yeah. I was trying to work it out. So let's say it's 40% reduction over, say, seven years. It's, well, my maths isn't very good here. Is it six and 7%-ish? Yeah. Look it's, look, it's important to know the numbers because otherwise, again, from expeditions, people will take tremendous risks, you know, to, you know, body and mind if they think it's worth it at some level. Just as a farmer will, they'll wear a, a cut to their irrigation quota if they know the person next door is feeling the same amount of pain and that ultimately all of you doing it together is going to be ultimately serving some greater good that you believe in. You, you will wear that. But it's about trust. It's about everybody doing it. It's about knowing what your contribution is. And I think there's nothing wrong with having numbers around that because it helps you realize the pain has a beginning and an end rather than just being an endless need to sort of be greener and better and more accountable. I think it gives you some certainty, which I think what people want. I've got a couple of questions I want to finish on. One, I think, what makes you optimistic and gives you hope about the future and where we're at today and where we will be in the future? Look, I, look, ask me on any given day, and I have to say my mood fluctuates, but the pessimism is the state we find ourselves in and the speed with which we have to make change. The, the optimistic side is that, particularly with agriculture as a sector, the snowball is at the top of the hill. You know, we have so much potential not only to decarbonize our own footprint, but also to do a lot of heavy lifting in the form of sequestering carbon for the benefit of all of us, drawing down all this excess stuff in the atmosphere just through changes to farming practices, which have beneficial outcomes for the bottom line for that individual farmer too. So we don't really need to invent any new technology. We really have all the answers. That's what makes me feel optimistic. And I'm optimistic because I see agriculture having a huge role to play. It's certainly very exciting. And so the next question, which I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, you get the chance to duck down the road here in Adelaide and chat to year 10 students in the city about why they should consider a career in agriculture. What would be your advice to them? Look, it's probably the number one growth sector ultimately. I mean, we all have to eat. It's not going anywhere. I think somebody earlier on said it's the second oldest industry in the world, jokingly, but they're right. And look, other than all the goods and services we receive from agriculture, it now has this unique role in, in saving us from the ravages of climate change into the mix. So I think, you know, the next generation of younger people thinking about whether they take on the family farm, I think that whole equation's now changed from 
whereas in the past it might have been seen as being in some instances you know a real obligation that you took on with a bit of a heavy heart perhaps feeling a sense of duty now it's a tremendous area of opportunity Tim Jarvis, thank you so much for sitting down and having a, a chat. One thing I do love about podcasting is it gives me the chance to ask the questions that I'm really curious about, and I think our audience is as well. And your story is fascinating. We've really only touched the tip of the iceberg. Thanks, Ollie. Thank you. Are you optimistic? Yeah, I am. As a sector, I think, as you said, we need to feed 9.7 billion people at the end of the century. We still need to do that three times a day or however many times a day people can get to it. And I think when it comes to ag, the part which gives me hope is that the most affluent people in society, part of our sector, but so are the poorest. And so we can lift people out of poverty and I guess their own situations, but we can also do extreme good. And I think it's a very special place to be. Absolutely. Well said. As always, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to share it with someone. Share it anywhere. Share it with your mum, dad, sister, brother, friend. Don't share it with your dog because they can't listen to it. But... Um, get around it. If you have any ideas of guests or anyone you'd like to see coming up on the Humans of Agriculture podcast, please hit us up because we are so open to having anyone and anyone. And you'll see that we're trialing different links of podcasts. We're trialing doing them in person on Zoom, pretty well on mobile phones. If you've got an idea, a story or someone you think is worth chatting to, hit us up with the details and we'll just reach out. Look after yourself, stay safe, stay sane. See you next time. Bye.